John chapter 12, verse 20 through 27. This is the second day of the last, this is the first day still of the last week of the Lord's life. This is the second act, if you will, of that first day of his last week. Jesus is in the temple. He is being interviewed or has been requested to be interviewed by some Greeks, some Gentiles who were evidently proselytes at the gate. Uh, they were converted to Judaism, but they were not, because they were Gentiles, allowed to go into the temple. The passage before us this morning for our consideration is that of John, the disciple of Christ, the apostle who wrote the first, second, and third John and the book of Revelation. He is record, recorded and recalling, uh, evidently by Holy Spirit inspiration, uh, one of the last sermons that Jesus gave. This very likely is Jesus' last public discourse before Jesus was arrested. And so John, in an effort to conserve space, evidently uh, only records for our remembrance the main points of his lesson. Let's read the uh, passage before us for our study today. John chapter 20, uh, John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So therefore, Father, glorify thy name. As I said in the introduction, these Greeks were probably proselytes at the gate, the uh, Gentiles who had uh, enough humility and enough respect for truth, or love for truth, to be converted to Judaism. There are many things that we can note along this line, um, but I would only pause to point out here that these were not. This was not the only instance of a gent of Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism that we read about in the New Testament. We read about the Ethiopian eunuch. This was not a Jewish eunuch. This was an Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile who had been converted to Judaism and traveled back. We read about him in Acts chapter eight to Jerusalem to worship God. We read about the centurion who called for Jesus to come to his house and heal his servant and uh, then realized, I'm not worthy of this man to enter into my house. And so, Jesus, will you heal him from afar? Uh, we read also about Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman centurion, who all of these were early believers in Christ and early followers of the Son of God, even though at this point in time the kingdom had not yet 
been brought into, into place. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 through 43, uh, we find a record there where Solomon makes a prayer in his temple, or the dedication of the temple, of Solomon's temple. And he says in that prayer, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I've built is called by your name. No doubt these Gentile converts were in part at least an answer to Solomon's prayer there in 1 Kings. Verse 21 of our reading this morning. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Philip uh, was not a Gentile, was a Jew who lived in Galilee, as many of Jesus' followers at this point in time did. The Greeks came to Philip because no doubt they lived in the same town that Philip did. And Philip had a Greek name. Uh, perhaps they knew each other from that town. They asked Philip for an interview. They didn't go directly to Jesus. That would have been uh, inappropriate under Judaist, under the Jewish uh, approach and the Jewish way of doing things. This is partly true, or partly possible too, because Jesus was in the temple. As a Jew, Jewish man, Jesus was allowed to go into the temple, uh, into all the temple except the most holy place. These Greeks, Gentiles, were not even allowed except to step in at the porch, at the entry into the king, into the temple. <clears throat> These Greeks had questions about the coming kingdom. No doubt they had other questions too, but we only have record of them asking, Sir, to Philip, we would see Jesus. What a sign of respect. What a great desire to have to see and to know Jesus. One man said that the dignity of the master elevates the disciple. The dignity of the master elevates the disciple. In other words, Jesus' dignity and his royalty and his bearing made those common fishermen that so often followed Jesus and so powerfully followed Jesus more than just common fishermen. It brought them up to a new standard in their life and to a new place along with new responsibility in the early days of the church. Philip, we find in the next verse, verse 22, came and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip then approached Jesus. This was a big question. Can we as Gentiles, in other words, the Greeks are asking, can we sit in an audience with the master of the universe, with the creator of the universe? Are we good enough? Does he care enough about us as his creation, to allow us an audience with him. Previously, we find that Jesus had commanded the disciples to go and to preach, but only to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to any city of the Samaritans, but only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it was a just question that these Gentiles had, that these Greeks had. <clears throat> On the other hand, we find that Jesus praised 
a certain Gentile, a certain woman who was of a lower caste. Perhaps she was a Gentile woman because she was from Syria, uh, Syrophoenicia. He says, I've not found such great faith. No, not in Israel, indicating that more than likely she was not a Jew. This woman who came to him with the issue of blood. Another point I want to point out to you as we move through this sermon that Jesus gave is that it takes a preacher. It takes a preacher. Many people in our world today fail to realize the necessity of having someone preach the gospel or teach the gospel. Romans chapter 10 tells us that people cannot hear unless someone is sent. When I say it takes a preacher, I'm not referring to someone who has an office in the church or who has a career like I do, like I'm privileged to do and spend his whole entire life uh, being supported and, and teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I say it takes a preacher, I say it take, I'm saying that it takes you, it takes me as ordinary Christians, if there is such a thing to preach and to tell the word of God, to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. If you look and study through the book of Acts, read through the book of Acts, every one of us could read through it easily in a week, probably in a day if we sat down and devoted about 30 or 45 minutes, maybe an hour to it. If we noticed carefully, every conversion in the book of Acts has a preacher of some sort. The most strange perhaps to our thinking and to our terminology would be the conversion of Apollos, the great orator in the Jewish circles at that time. Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila was not an evangelist. Aquila was not an apostle. Neither was his wife Priscilla, but it took both of them. Preachers telling Apollos the good news and teaching him the, more, the way more perfectly. I want to notice now Jesus' response to this question. It's very unique and it's very special and very powerful. Jesus says, my hour is come. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified, verse 23. Previously in the book of John, we find in John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. In verse 30, he's, it says, the, the John records for us that the group, the, the crowd around him, the Herodians and such, sought to take him, but no man could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, Jesus is standing and teaching in the temple. Jesus, in chapter 8, verse 20, we find he's teaching in the treasury, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. But now, just a few chapters later, John records for us that Jesus says, now my time has come. Now my hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is the time. Now I am going for my death. Now I am going for my glorification. His, the time for his suffering to begin has arrived. This is the time for him to be glorified. And I think it's striking that the world today thinks when we glorify something, we lift it up, we make it popular, we make it well known. 
But for Jesus, his glorification came with his death, with his suffering. Strange and difficult for many people today to realize, to wrap their mind around how the Son of Man is to be glorified by suffering and by dying. The passion of Christ, something glorious. The exaltation followed him was something wonderful. The future adoration, future still to our time, of Jesus Christ by the host of millions of believers from all around the world for all of eternity, the book of Revelation instructs us, is part of his exaltation, part of his glorification. Jesus was glorified not only by death and suffering, not only is he to be glorified in the future, but we find, and I think most, most importantly for us today, Jesus is glorified by obedience. By obedience. First of all, he was glorified by his obedience to his father and the death on the cross. By the redemption that he purchased for all men. You see, our cross, our redemption rather, is precious because of the price that was paid for it. Jesus was glorified ultimately when God the Father exalted him and lifted him up on high. In fact, Jesus says in, John, in Matthew, brother, Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, indicating that there was a point in time when Jesus, the Son of God, did not have all authority, but now all authority has been given to him. God the Father exalted him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. In a manner of speaking, you might say Jesus could look at this point in his life across the vista of eternity and see magnificence reaching forward, reaching glory, reaching forward through all eternity. Then we find this in verse 24, this wonderful grain of wheat analogy. Keep in mind, uh, I understand that from this passage that these are the main points of Jesus' sermon that day. Verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. What a concept. Life comes by death? That's not something that we generally think about. That's not something that our mind usually follows along. We don't know exactly what the Greeks' questions were to Jesus that day beyond asking an audience with, from Philip. Some have argued as to whether or not Jesus even met with the Greeks. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. It makes for interesting discussions, but beyond that, there's no merit. We know Jesus' statements to them, to the crowd that day around him and them. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see the triumphant king who was riding victoriously to claim his crown, his rightful kingdom. They did not understand, though, that his kingdom, that his triumph, that his victory began with his death. 
What a way to win a battle. What a way to start a kingdom. To die. His was the first body to be sacrificed. Think about this, folks. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see him triumphant, riding on the donkey as a triumphant prince, taking over the world, become making and exalting their fleshly, worldly kingdom. Whatever the they are in the Greeks must have stirred Jesus' mind and caused him to recall perhaps what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. So Jesus replies, my time is now. And he begins to preach. And he says, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. If it dies, though, it produces much grain. This is sealed with the double uh, promise or the double seal, if you will, of amen, amen, or verily, verily, I say to you. This verifies and stamps his authority and the seceding thoughts with Jesus' authority, the Son of God's authority. The mystery that Jesus expounds and puts forth here is important and is so applicable for us today. We cannot have eternal life unless we die. We cannot live unless we die. Death must come before life. Glory cannot come until death comes. No redemption without Jesus' suffering. All oh, this is so true in nature as well as in spiritual life. Jesus is making application to himself as the great grain of wheat, which, if it doesn't die, will not be able to produce life in other people. Jesus says further, if the grain does not die, it will remain alone. This is a proven fact. Archaeologists have found and tested what uh, wheat that had been buried in a Pharaoh's tomb back in Egypt. Over 4,000 years old, this wheat was. That wheat bore fruit. Think about that. It was not put in the ground. It did not die. It bore fruit when it was put in the ground and when it died, no matter how old it was. We're amazed with Jesus' wisdom, aren't we? I am. I feel like we shouldn't be, though. We know who he is. We know he is the Son of God. We've seen him tell them he was going to establish his kingdom. We've seen his triumph at this point in the scripture. We've heard him tell the people how he was going to be glorified. They were no doubt terrified by it, and perhaps that's why their mind shut off the possibility of the death of their Messiah, the death of their chosen one. It dashed their hopes. It ruined their dreams. But he used this opportunity to explain why it was necessary. As I said, we must die before we live. If a grain of seed does not die, it will not give life to other, other grains. So it was with Jesus. If he did not die, he could not bring life to all men. Man would be forever hopelessly lost in sin. Think about this. 
Because Jesus died, all the saints of the Old Testament who looked forward to his death now have life. All the saints of the New Testament era, our era, who look back to his death now have life because the giver of life died. Apart from the cross of Christ, there is no spiritual harvest. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the writer says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 25. John chapter 12, verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I want you to see the diagram, if you can read it on the board. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose self, you're going to protect your life, your afterlife. Life is more than living. Life is more than food and drink. Life is more than shelter, clothes, vanities of the worldly fame, vanities of this earthly tabernacle. We need to look forward to eternal life. The Apostle Paul writes in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, through 24, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, having desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, for me to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where's Jesus going? He's going to the cross. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. In other words, if anyone wants to be a Christian, let that person imitate me. Let him do what I do. Let him bear what I bear. Love what I love. We're going to work backwards here. For us as Christians, that means we bear wrongs willingly. We bear wrongs willingly. We give ourselves sacrificially, just like Jesus did, remember? We love the Father first. Eternal life is our goal. That's all that's important to us. Perhaps I said it when I was here last month. Faith first. If we lose our faith, we've lost everything. Nothing else matters. All of this is involved. But it begins with us dying to death with Jesus. That occurs in baptism. We go down into the water, Romans chapter 6. 
We're immersed, covered up in water. We die with Christ. We're crucified with Christ there. We raise up out of the water a new creation in Christ Jesus, a new man having a new life. Jesus commands his disciples in verse 26, if you love me, follow me. Do what I have done. Be crucified, symbolized in baptism. Go out and live a new life. Will you bear wrongs willingly? Will you endure sacrificially? And then you will have the joy that belongs to Christ also. Verse 26, you might say, is an explanation of verse 25. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He who, hate, who, he who loves his life will lose it. That sounds strange to us today, doesn't it? He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. What's our end goal here? Our end goal is eternal life. Let him follow me, Jesus says. If you hate your life, follow me. And then you'll gain eternal life. If you hate his life in this world, if you serve Jesus Christ, him my father will honor, verse 26, and you'll keep eternal life. You'll keep your life forever. Not your life, your life in Christ Jesus. So we begin to see that not to love one's life, but to hate it in this world means not to serve him, not to serve self like other men do. This isn't a one and done deal. This following concept is not one and done. It doesn't end at baptism. Rather, if that's your concept, I want to inform you it begins at baptism. Recall the parable of the good shepherd, if you will, in John chapter 10, verse 4. When he brings out his sheep, he goes before him and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. This doesn't happen to strangers or casual acquaintances, but only those who are near and dear. To follow Jesus is to keep close to him, to walk in the path of his choosing. This is true obedience. Sometimes it means suffering. Sometimes it means hardship. Sometimes it means difficulty. Sometimes it means blessing. To follow him is to hear his voice. Not our reason, his reason. Not the reason of others, of society, but the master's reason, the master's voice. You see, service is costly. Service is costly, but the dividends are high. One man said it well, and I agree from my study of the scripture. The Lord had many admirers. They loved him. They admired him for the miracles that he did, for the bread that he fed. But he had few followers, many admirers, but few followers. Some of these admirers are busy bidding others follow, but are remiss, unwilling to follow themselves. Jesus says, let him follow me. A lot of times we think about that. We think he's calling us to discipleship. 
He's calling us to endure suffering. And yes, that is certainly involved. But I want to point out to you that the scripture indicates that this is a calling, an offer of a high privilege. John chapter 6, verse 68. Simon Peter answered and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is in effect saying, only those who follow me have eternal life. No one else does. No one else even has the hope of eternal life. Jesus says, gives this grand invitation to believers with a statement that is opposite to the one that he had just declared to the Jews, the Jews who did not believe him. In John chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus says, You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, there you can't come. John chapter 8, verse 21. Jesus said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am, you cannot come. In this statement, in John chapter 6, verse 68, we have the gospel in short form, if you will. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus says, the sheep follow the good shepherd because they know his voice. If anyone serve me, let him come after me. If anyone love me, let him come after me. This explains the phrase, if anyone serves me, the same my father will honor. This and I'm closing. The word honor is, is translated in some places as reward. In Luke chapter 18, it's translated, See, then Peter said, see, we've left all and followed you. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. When a believer leaves all to follow Christ, Jesus has promised eternal life certain blessings worth more than all the treasures of this world. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus says to the church, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. All oh, but listen to this. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 3 verse 21. To him who overcomes. That's what means to be faithful unto death. I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down on my father's throne. On his throne. Our responsibility as Christians this morning. 